0: Job is a man that lost it all, lost his 10 children, lost all of his possessions, lost the respect of his wife, covered from head to toe with very painful boils, laying in ashes, scraping those boils with pieces of broken pottery. Three friends come to see him. I don't know where the other friends were. He was the greatest man in the east. Three people showed up. They stared at him silently. For seven days, then they began to speak, and that was even worse than being stared at. They began to look, examine, uh, accuse Job of some kind of sin because God would never allow people to suffer were it not for sin. Now, the concept of doing things wrong and having bad things happen to you in response is partially true, but it's not completely true. Remember that man Jesus healed? The disciples said, all right, this guy's in bad shape. Who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. But for the glory of God, I'm going to heal him. And so doing things wrong will sooner or later turn into consequences, right? Cause and effect. There are consequences for sin. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. The way of the righteous is a highway. But that does not mean that highway sometimes does not lead through tough times. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. So if there's a flood in Granbury and your house is living in the floodplain, guess what? Unless a miracle happens, your house is underwater because you're a fellow citizen of earth. And so that's the facts. But it's not always the case. Sometimes things happen to God's people that may appear that it doesn't happen to anybody else. Never believe the lie that you're the only one. And it's my hope and prayer that we completely uproot out of the culture of this church any tendency to try to blame people for all of their suffering. I went to a seminar one time put on by one of the local rehab centers. They're helping people get off their addictions, and a question was asked, We notice a lot of people with addictions are also bipolar. Which came first? Were they bipolar so they became addicts? Or were their addictions doing damage to their brains so now they're bipolar? And the leader of the rehab center wisely said, To us, it doesn't matter. There's a problem. Let's help. Let's help. All right? So finding a reason to blame doesn't always help anyway. It is what it is. Now let's move on. Beating people up for their past is cruel anyway. Jesus took the beating for us. Amen? And so, here we continue with the story. After being blasted repeatedly by three well-meaning friends, Job is assailed by a fourth friend. We talked about him last Sunday. Named Elihu the Buzite. While declaring some wonderfully amazing things about God and His glorious majesty, Elihu mixes in with those praises, accusations, of sin against Job. While including lots of bragging about himself, this younger man finally ends his religious and cruel rant against this suffering man when he was, it appears, possibly suddenly interrupted by God himself, who had said previously that Job was blameless. Now, in his discourse, Elihu was talking about the weather, the wind, the rain, clouds, lightning, thunder, so it could be that kind of thing was beginning to happen. Little did he know that his object lesson to point out the greatness of God was actually a sign of God coming on the scene. Covered in painful boils, sitting in ashes and scraping his oozing sores with pieces of broken pottery, Job the falsely accused is blessed with a visit from the Almighty who reveals his greatness with mind-blowing imagery. It appears that God began speaking at the perfect time. In chapter 37, the last two verses, Elihu is talking, and he says, As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress. Therefore, men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. Insinuating Job's not wise. During Elihu's mixing of wonderful declarations, Of the glory of God with his condemning accusations against Job, God shows up. In answer to Job's cry, in chapter 31, verse 35, he says, Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. The Almighty begins to speak for himself. Chapter 38 begins, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Keep in mind, Elihu had been speaking of clouds, and here's a whirlwind. So maybe he and all three friends ran for cover. I don't know. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said might be paraphrased that Jehovah answered for or on behalf of Job it's a strong word that he says and if you put yourself in job's shoes you may think it would be hard for job to hear but it's medicine to his soul because his soul had been infected by these accusations his soul had been infected by his own defenses trying to defend himself he had gotten his eyes off of trusting in god if you look at the earlier part of his defenses he told his wife we must trust god he got away from trusting god to looking at his own self to looking for things to defend himself so the lord answered job out of the whirlwind and said who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge On the surface, this may look to some like God is putting Job down. But as we really get into this part of the story, we can see that while he is revealing infinite things about himself and finite things about Job, God is also opening Job's eyes to his own hope-robbing blindness. Having a heart desperate to hear the truth, God's strong words minister life and hope to Job's heart and soul. If you treat a boil right, it's going to be painful, right? It's going to hurt because you've got to get that poison out. And so while God's words may hurt, it's going to draw the poison of distrust out of his soul and hopelessness out of his mind. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you? When I laid the foundations of the earth. This states the Almighty's pre existence. Job, I'm older than you. Why are you leaning on your understanding trying to make sense out of everything? You tell me, where were you when everything got made? Tell me if you have understanding. Tell me, where were you? Who determined its measurements? This states, his predestining purpose. Before he made everything, he determined the dimensions of it. His purpose that pre-existed everything, destined everything to come into being. Surely you know. Who determined his measurements? Surely you know, since you're the big wise guy who's who's trying to make sense of out of everything, tell me, who determined the dimensions of the universe? Who stretched the line upon it? This speaks of God's immense omnipotence. He's all-powerful. Only He can measure the universe. It's trillions of light years in distance in its measurement. No one can, but God can. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's on Mars just as surely as He's here. He fills the universe with his presence. He knows a measurement of everything. He's omnipotent and immense. To what were its foundations fastened? What holds all this together? We know gravity has a part to play in it, but what does gravity connect to? You ever put a, uh, take a bucket of water, in in science, in elementary school, they use this to demonstrate gravity. You put water in a bucket and you, Spin it like this and the water doesn't fall out. That centrifugal force keeps the water in the bucket. But yet that doesn't demonstrate gravity because the earth is spinning. We should be flying off of it because if you turn that bucket over and do that, the water is gone. What holds all this together? This speaks of God's sustaining power and authority. All things are held together by the word of his power. Can we say God is superior? He is superior. Or who laid its cornerstone? Who did? Tell me, Job. Who laid the cornerstone to the universe? Where's the center of all this? When the morning stars sang together, were you there? And all the sons of God shouted for joy, were you there, Job? This speaks of experiences that God has that man has no knowledge of. Being humbled by such credible quizzing, Job hears our Heavenly Father go on to describe his divine perceptions and interactions with nature. Using words of jaw-dropping beauty while including more rhetorical queries, I think God nails a coffin shut on all of Job's hopelessness with multiple revelations of his awesomeness. For the sake of time, let's skip through God's splendid speech here and look at some of his rhetorical questions. You know what a rhetorical question is? It's a question that actually is a statement. These are amazing questions. Have you entered the springs of the sea? These are the days before scuba diving. In verse 21, he had said, do you know it because you were born then or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered the springs of the sea? Have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? In other words, Job, you say you want to die, but you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what death leads to. Why are you so fascinated with dying? You don't know what you're talking about. Have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? You're still here. You're still alive. As I stated earlier, when you quote from the book of Job, you must be careful... Because there's a lot of opinions of man in it. So just because somebody says, Job Job, such and such says, be careful. Some people look to the book of Job for answers to questions about death. Well, when you do that, look at what God says. But be careful if you're quoting what Job said about death, as he apparently did not know what he was talking about. Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? You know how big this planet is where you live? Tell me if you know all this. Verse 31, he goes on, can you bind the cluster of Pleiades? Pleiades? Pleiades is known as the seven sisters. It's a constellation of stars It appears in the wintertime. Some people think it's the Little Dipper, but it's not. It is believed by some in the scientific community that Pleiades, which is part of the Milky Way, is the center of the gravitational pole that holds the, the Milky Way in order. Scriptures really are inspired, aren't they? Or loose the belt of Orion. Orion's belt. Who's seen Orion's belt? Any astronomers in the house? Can you untie that thing? Of course Job can't, but God could. A well, word of his power. He can just rearrange things if he wanted to. Can you bring out Mazarath in its season? A Mazarath is a word about a specific constellation. I wasn't able to figure out what constellation it was. Some translations say, can you bring out the constellations in their season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Now this is speaking of the star Arcturus. Arcturus orbit is 125,000 miles per second. Job, can you guide Arcturus and the stars that are part of its orbital system? Of course he can, not but God can. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? We're still learning things every day. Can you set their dominion over the earth? Mercury rotates around the sun 47 kilometers per second venus 35 kilometers per second earth 29 kilometers per second mars 24 kilometers per second jupiter 13 kilometers per second saturn nine kilometers per second
1: watch this video entitled a creation rant you me carrot top martha stewart the queen mother the kid that sold you coffee this morning everybody and everything is spinning at a thousand miles an hour busy Not surprising considering terra firma is blasting through the universe at 67,000 miles an hour. Big numbers, fast speeds, right? Wrong. You only think so because I'm not done yet. Earth lives in a tiny little solar system, revolves around a tiny little sun, sends light in our direction at 186,000 miles per second. If you and I could travel that fast, it would still take us 100,000 years to get from one end of the galaxy to the other. Big? You have no idea. You can't even conceive. Every star that any human being has ever seen is an atom in a molecule, in a drop of water at the bottom of the biggest bucket imaginable. You and I, we don't even show up in that metaphor. You think I'm exaggerating? Our galaxy is one of 100 billion. 100 billion. Got it? Of course not. I could say it a hundred billion times, and your mind still would not and could not possibly grasp the concept. And even if you think it has, it just goes to show you that you don't understand that the universe is expanding at a billion miles an hour in every direction. So what's my point? God is my point. I could go on and on that despite the fact of the infinite amount of space in our universe, evolutionary scientists will still admit that the chances of life happening anywhere, much less here, are mind-numbingly small. I could talk about the fine-tuned universe theory, or the rare earth theory. I give you lots of math and numbers. We could talk about the tilt of the earth, the atmosphere and radiation and tides and how all of that has to be. But the fact still remains that you're struggling with the sheer cosmic scale of what I'm talking about. So forget about it. I'm not trying to convince anybody. I'm not making an argument. I'm not even having a debate. I can only say what I see. And what I see is God. I'm talking small facts again. I'm talking sea turtles returning to their hatching beaches. I'm talking heartbeats. I'm talking everybody has a unique tongue print. I'm talking a tiny fleet jumping off the back of your dog and the acceleration is 20 times that of the space shuttle launching. Which just goes to show you there's no such thing as talking small facts. I can only say what I see and what I feel in my insignificant tiny little corner of the universe. God. You don't agree? It's fine. We can talk. But do me a favor before we do. Get up at two in the morning and drive for four hours. A ridiculous speck in cosmic distance. Drive for four hours to a beach and watch a sunrise. No math, no facts, no numbers, just the sunrise. Then we can talk.
0: In my research, I found some that believe the solar system is moving 15% faster than they thought, which means the Milky Way is a whole lot bigger than they thought. God is awesome holding all these things together. Moving on from his authority over creation, the weather and the stars, God begins to use the animal kingdom. Yes, the interaction with these living creatures to bring forth his hope bringing points. Do you know the time, verse 1 of Job 39, when the mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill do you know the time when they bear young? Remember Jesus said that the Father knows when a sparrow dies. Do you know when a sparrow dies, Job? Are you able to keep track of all this since you're trying to be wise and understanding all that's happened to you? Does a hawk fly by your wisdom, verse 26, and spread its wings toward the south? Catching those southern wind currents. Does the eagle mount up at your command and make its nest on high? Are you the one that gave birds these instincts? On the rock it dwells and resides. On the crag of the rock in the stronghold. From where it spies out the prey, its eyes observe from afar. Listen to this. All eagles are known for their excellent eyesight. And the bald eagle is no exception. They have two centers of focus that allow them to see forward and to the side at the same time. Bald eagles are capable of seeing fish in the water from several hundred feet above. This is quite a feat since most fish are countered shaded meaning they are darker on top, less reflective, and thus harder to see. They have eyelids that close during sleep. For blinking, they have an inner eyelid called a nictitating membrane. Every three or four seconds, this membrane slides across the eye from front to back, wiping dirt and dust from the cornea. Because the membrane is translucent, eagles can see even when they're blinking. Eagles, like all birds, have color vision. An eagle's eye is almost as large as a human's, but its sharpness is at least four times that of any of us with perfect eyesight. The eagle is believed to be able to see a moving rabbit from almost a mile away. That means that an eagle flying at an altitude of 1,000 feet over open country could possibly spot prey in an area of almost three square miles from any position. Amazing. Job, I made the eagle. Why can't you trust me? Moreover, the Lord answered Job in chapter 40, verse 1, and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Now the Lord's becoming very direct with this hopeless man from us, Mr. Job. He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I'm vile. (laughs) What shall I answer you? The trial he was in, it tempted him and he yielded to the temptation because of his pain. He erred and stopped trusting in the Almighty. I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Uh, Oh, wait a minute, I spoke more than once. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. God, I'm being quiet. I recognize you're awesome, and I'm not. Being greatly humbled, Job repents forever questioning God. While his friends falsely accused him, wrongly assuming that everything bad in life must be the result of our sinful choices. Job, on the other hand, on the basis of his not being deserving of such suffering, winds up questioning God concerning what appeared to be injustice. Trying to make sense of everything, not just the recovery of his losses, became this hurting man's quest. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, chapter 40, verse 6, and said... Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? No. Why are you leaning on it? Don't lean on the arm of the flesh, the Bible says. Or can you thunder with a voice like His? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, and array yourself In glory and beauty. If you're able to do this. Verse 14, he ends this part of the speech. God says, then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Job, I'm your only hope. Why are you looking towards your goodness? Why are you trying to have a court and declare yourself innocent that this is unjust, that somehow God made a mistake by allowing this to happen to me? In other words, Mr. Job the Uzzide, I am God and you're not. Having no other choice but to trust God, it is best to trust Him. Can I get an amen? Having no other choice but to trust God, it is best to what? Trust Him. Even though we do not understand, it is better to trust God than not. I want to speak to you on the topic, how to hope when you don't know how. How to hope when you don't know how to hope. Our first two teachings from the book of Job were on how to be unlike Job's comforters and how to minister effectively to someone struggling with hopelessness, how not to help the hopeless and how to help the hopeless. Last week, we shifted gears and looked at this issue from another angle by putting ourselves in the place of being hopeless and seeing how to relate to people who don't really care or they do care but they just don't understand. We saw that this is very important because life can often bring us opportunities to face circumstances when all seems futile and our well-meaning acquaintances may not remember how to minister to us effectively. So to handle hope-robbing critics, we've got to learn not to take everything people say to heart Ecclesiastes seven20 says, don't take everything people say to heart, lest you hear your neighbor cursing you, and then remember when you have done the same. So when someone is mishandling their opportunity to minister to you, remember when you have done the same. Don't let go of the fact that your redeemer lives. Job had that revelation, and in his efforts to defend himself. He lost it. Do look to God continually to him and for his answers. Don't retaliate or argue with your critics or slanderers. It will distract you. It will get you off course. It's a temptation. Do exercise your right to remain silent and let God defend you. When someone's out to accuse you, everything you say becomes a weapon. Oh, no, but I've got the perfect speech. Right. Try it. You won't like it. Don't totally discount misplaced criticism that is constructive. Sometimes people share truths with us, maybe not at the right time. Don't throw that truth out. You may need it for another time. Keep records of everything spoken that could be valuable. Don't be foolish and just say, well, he hurt my feelings. I see I need to do it, but I'm not going to do it because of who told me to do it. That's, that's foolish. Don't throw wisdom out. Don't believe you're the only one in the world with hardships. (laughs) That is a lie. And do think of someone else who needs hope and help them. Even in your struggles, you can help others. By the end of this story, Job's friends were in serious trouble. They needed somebody to pray for them. And God gave Job the opportunity, and Job did it. He prayed for his friends, and in the process, not only was his hope restored, but his losses began to be restored. In conclusion, how to hope when you don't know how. How to hope when you don't know how. When there are no other options, trust the Lord. This is basically a one-point sermon. Trust God. When you forget, look at a penny. In God we trust. That will remind you. That's our national motto, trusting God. Trusting God. With all of our blessings as a nation and all of our incredible technology, Don't lose sight of that foundational truth, the need to trust God. When you have no reliable resources, trust God. Because He is the source of hope, faith, and love, and courage, and trusting in Him when you don't understand is a resource that you can tap into. When all appears to be totally hopeless, put all your trust in him and hope will begin rising in your heart. When you don't know how to hope, it's not a matter of, well, I'm going to try to hope better. I'm going to try to hope better. No, hope is a fruit of trust. Really? is. As you trust him. Hope's going to come. So you're not trying to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and be unhopeless. Or try to be, I'm going to try to be hopeful. Uh, No. God, I put all my trust in You, in You. Oh Lord, I put all my trust in You. You ride up on the wings of the wind. Hold the ocean in the palm of Your hand. There is nothing too hard for You. I put all my trust in You. You'll do that. Hope begins to dawn. It's already there. You have the hope of salvation. It's there. But it's been silenced by circumstances or whatever reason. The lack of trust of God becomes a part of our life. Remember that if we have no other choices, hoping in God becomes easier as we begin trusting him. When you don't have any choice but to trust God, Maybe those closest to you have betrayed you. Trust God. Maybe you've been traumatized by your childhood and you don't trust anybody. People are sinners. They will let you down. They will disappoint you. But don't live like an island. Begin to trust God. For some reason, you're still here. You survived. Somebody was watching over you. Put your trust in Him. In the earlier series on hope, I said get a handle on Romans chapter 8. It applies here too. And also in the Old Testament, get a handle on Isaiah 55. And keep your eyes of faith on the greater one. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We're living in the world. Some people interpret that verse, he that is in the world is the devil and God's greater. Okay, that's fine. Other people interpret that, he that is in the world is you and me. I'm in the world, but he that's living in me is greater than the me that's in the world. Isaiah 55, just a passage out of that amazing chapter. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Here's a story of a modern day Job. Horatio Spafford was a 42-year-old lawyer. He lived on the north side of Chicago with his wife, Anna, and five children. In 1871, his only son died, leaving him four daughters. A few months later, the great Chicago fire of 1871 consumed Spafford's real estate investments. He lost his entire life saving.
1: Well, well
0: Two years later, Spafford and his family decided to take a vacation to Europe. However, he was delayed by last minute business. So he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead on the S.S. Ville de Havre, as scheduled, promising to follow in a few days. On November 22, 1873, the ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel and it sank in 12 minutes. 226 people were killed. When the survivors of the shipwreck landed in Europe, Anna Spafford cabled her husband, quote, saved alone, what shall I do, cross, I be no Spafford immediately left Chicago to bring his, new, his wife home. In the midst of his sorrow, while sailing near the place of his daughter's death, he wrote the words to this hymn, It Is Well, This Is My Soul. In spite of the tragedy, in 1881, the Spaphras moved to Jerusalem to meet the needs of the people and share Christ. Those who live there. You will be secure because there is a hope. Job 11, 18. Millions have been blessed by Spafford's sacrifice of praise through this amazing song, It Is Well With My Soul.